Well, uh, this past year has seen a few new words and phrases being added to our lexicon, hasn't it? We've had, uh, or at least words have become uh, words that have appeared in everyone's lips more and more often. Words like isolation or self-isolation. Even that word quarantine, I think for the last 50 years, this really just referred to horses being transported to the other side of the world. Uh, It's not since the 1950s that human beings have had to quarantine because of scarlet fever. But now, well, we're all using quarantine. Or how about this word, social distancing. And yeah, we know, there's a bug going around. It's easily transferable, so keep your distance, wear a mask, got to do it. But the thing is, right, that we're social beings. And so there's the standard phrases that we would be aware of, things like no man is an island, or our very, very South African word, Ubuntu, which which means, literally means that you are who you are through other people. In other words, we are shaped and we are formed by community. And this year has revealed some hardship due to lack of social interaction amongst people. A, a recent study has shown that depression and anxiety have skyrocketed amongst teenagers who are now doing online school instead of in-person teaching. And I know that there are some people that are more introverted than others and would prefer their own company. And they've they've rejoiced in this last year of being able to, with legitimate reasons, say, no thanks, I'm not coming. Um, but I think even many of them are beginning to recognize that we we need human beings. We need others around us. It's not healthy to be alone. You remember the Tom Hanks movie, Castaway, right? Where he's got a friend of volleyball because he recognizes that we're not made to be alone. So just to be clear, this is not some kind of rant about COVID this morning. And I'm certainly not asking you to abandon your COVID protocols. I- I'm just pointing out that we were made and built for community. And that we're in an unusual place here and now. Solitary confinement is one of the worst things that you can do to, to a prisoner. I was reading a book a couple of weeks ago about a, a guy who's wrongfully accused and ends up on death row. And he says that it's the 23 hours in a cell by yourself that are the worst. It's the, the loneliness and the isolation of that. And that's what drove him, drove him nuts, drove him over the edge. So no, we are created for community. And as Christians, we're called into community and into this special community called church. See, in in the New Testament, there there really isn't a concept of a Christian who's not part of the local church. In fact, the only time a Christian isn't part of the local church is because he's been put out of the church because of gross moral sin, moral failure. And if you had been living in Thessalonica 2,000 years ago, and you didn't like the church at Jason's house, someone said something to you that you found offensive or whatever, you couldn't just pack up and go to a church down the road. There was only one church. It was the church at Jason's house. You were stuck with it. And today we're going to hear what Paul has to tell us about the gospel and why the gospel, why gospel community is so vital for us, that we were made for it. We're going to read from uh, 1 Thessalonians chapter 2, from verse 17, and we'll read that gospel community is necessary, and, it's, and it has a purpose. What is the purpose of community? So, let me read from verse 17. But, brothers, when we were torn away from you for a short while, in person, not in thought, out of our intense longing, we made every effort to see you. For we wanted to come to you, certainly I pulled it again and again, but Satan stopped us. For what is our hope, our joy, or the crown in which we will glory in the presence of our Lord Jesus when he comes? Is it not you? Indeed, you are our glory and joy. 
So when we could stand it no longer, we thought it best to be left by ourselves in Athens. And we sent Timothy, who is our brother and God's fellow worker, in spreading the gospel of Christ to strengthen and encourage you in your faith, so that no one would be unsettled by these trials. You know quite well that we were destined for them. In fact, when we were with you, we kept telling you that we would be persecuted. And it turned out that way, as you well know. For this reason, when I could stand it no longer, I sent to find out about your faith. I was afraid that in some way the tempter might have tempted you, and our efforts might have been useless. So we know the storyline, right? That Paul started the church three weeks later. He's kicked out of town six months later. He wants to find out what's going on, what's happened to his friends. He sends Timothy. Timothy gives him a good report. And he's all excited by what he hears. But you've got to catch that language in that opening verse that I read this morning, don't you? Where he says, we were torn apart from you. Literally, it means to be orphaned. It's like a, a family being torn apart. Um, parents going one way and the kids another. Picture some of those images at various border posts around the world, right? Where the family... Is divided and separated from one another. And then he says, my intense longing is to see you. And if you were to read that verse in the ESV translation, you see that, that, that what Paul says is, I long to see you face to face. Can I just pause for a moment and say, that's my longing right now too. I long to see you face to face. There, there are a number of people in our church that I just haven't seen for a month, for a year, I long to see you face to face. And I think some of you feel the same, that you have a longing to meet with people once again, to see something beyond just a com computer screen. I long to see you face to face. And I long to see people who are sitting at home online face to face. And we've missed that over this last year, haven't we? And someone told me this morning how nice it was to see a couple of faces on the screen last week that we haven't seen for six months. And, and for, for right reasons or wrong reasons or whatever the case may be, the fact that some people haven't been here has been hard. It's been hard. There's some people in our church that I haven't seen for a month, and it's hard. And there's some people that I haven't seen for a year, and that's even harder. We long to see one another face to face. I think we're going to talk to Dean and Nithya about how this works later. Because Nithya was in the UK for eight months. And, and great, you've got, you know, you've got FaceTime and you can do you can chats and do, do your video chat. But there is something about being in one another's presence. You, you're saying the same things, telling the same stories. But something's different, isn't it? And Paul says here, I long to see you face to face. The storyline of the Bible is a storyline of face-to-face -face community with one another. God himself is a community. God is Trinity. There's three in one. It's a tri-unity. And God himself is a working community. And out of, that, out of that unity, out of that community, God creates, puts Adam on the planet and says, it's not good for Adam Gathering his people, 
gathering a community, gathering them together. And, and it's in community where the poor are cared for, where, where the needs are met, where, where, where protection is offered. In fact, one of the joys, one of the highlights in the Old Testament was when Moses meets with God. I don't know if you remember the phrase that's used there when Moses enters the tabernacle and he meets with God face to face. And yet the tendency of the human heart is towards selfishness, isn't it? The tendency of the human heart is to be, is to, is, is to be self-centered. And the story of the gospel keeps pulling us toward one another. And so Jesus comes to save. And he doesn't just come to save you. He doesn't just come to get your butt into heaven. It isn't about you and Jesus being wonderful together. Jesus calls us into a community of faith. Jesus gathers his church. Salvation connects us to God and connects us to one another. And right throughout the New Testament, there's this sense of, of plurality, of community, of together, of more than one. Uh, even in simple verses that we know, like Romans 12, verse 1, present your bodies as, living, as a living sacrifice. It's a plural thing, present your bodies. Now, here's the thing, I don't have more than one body. This is not my Sunday body, I don't have a Monday body later on. I know some of you might have a Saturday night body and a Sunday, it's one body, right? But when Paul says present your bodies, plural, he's not asking me to come up with several bodies. He's talking to each of us. But each of us present our body as a living sacrifice. It's Again, it's the sense of together and community. And the end goal of that is seen in Revelation 7 and Revelation 14, where there's this great crowd of people from every tribe and every tongue and every nation all together, all gathered as one body, in community, in harmony, worshipping Jesus. And the gospel creates that longing in us. Or at least the gospel should create that longing in us. And if there isn't that longing in us, then there's a breakdown of something. And Paul says, this is my longing. This is my desire. This is my intention. To see you face to face. To be in community together with one another. And so although, although there's this longing for community, the truth is, Paul says, that Satan hinders community. It's Satan's desire to hinder community. Satan would prevent it from happening. You know, in an insurrection, you always target the things that are most important. You target electricity, water points, um, you, you target TV and radio because you want to control the media. So this is just a heads up for anyone who wants to plan another insurrection in the next couple of weeks. You don't go to porn and grab yourself a TV. That doesn't help the insurrection. You target the things that are most important to break down the system. What does Satan target in order to break down the system? Paul says, I longed to come and be with you. I wanted to be with you face to face. But Satan prevented it from happening. It would seem that the devil loves to stop community from taking place. 
hates. The devil loves to see Christians isolated. The devil would love to see Christians engaged in the practice of spiritual distancing from one another. Now again, to be clear, this is not to say that COVID is in some way the devil's grand plan to keep the church apart. That right now the church is allowed together, right? But I think the devil will use an awful lot of things to keep us apart. He hasn't needed COVID for the last couple of hundred years to keep us separated. The devil is quite happy to use the beach to do that. Or to use our own laziness to do that. And yes, sometimes, like in, in our current world, he quite happy to use our own fears to keep us from gathering in community. And again, to be clear, we don't blame the devil for everything. Right? If you have a headache, it's not necessarily the devil's fault. It could well be the wine's fault. <laughs> or the whining that took place in the car on the way here. Losing your temper is not because you have the demon of anger in you. But we do have an enemy who wants to disrupt and deceive. And yes, our enemy would long love to keep us from gathering in community because community is good. And so when we commit ourselves to a relationship, and when we commit ourselves to pursuing community, we can expect opposition. The devil opposes Christian fellowship, and will hinder that community taking place through business, or through just plain busyness, or he may hinder it through gossip and slander, and laziness, and a whole host of other means. I think in our wider society, he's done a great job of doing this, because he has... All the devil's fault, right? He has, I think, turned our society into this highly individualistic society of, of self-sufficiency. I can do it alone. I need no one else. And, and why our society has bought into that and has, as a result has experienced great disconnect from one another. So, the gospel, uh, gospel community is, is necessary. It's, it's a joy. The devil will hinder it. But here's the thing, the gospel creates it. The gospel produces community. Consider this, right? Paul was a Pharisee. And Pharisees believed this about Gentiles. They believed that Gentiles were created as fuel for the fires of hell. That Gentiles were nothing more than logs to burn. That was it. And in fact, any contact, even with a shadow of a Gentile, would require a Pharisee to go out and, and, and perform some form of ceremonial cleansing. So Pharisees would just never hang out with Gentiles, ever. It just wouldn't happen. Paul is a Pharisee. And what is his attitude to these Gentiles? He says, you're my crown. You're my joy. You're my glory. No Pharisee would ever say that about Gentiles. So what is it that prompted Paul to change? What is this attitude that's changing Paul? Where did it come from? He lets us know in Galatians and Ephesians that the gospel, the message of the cross, has broken down the wall that divides between Jew and Gentile. And he says that there is now only one people belonging to God, that God has created one new humanity and all different groups and brought them together. And there's all sorts of reasons that people gather in groups. You can join a flower arranging society, you can join bowling clubs and kite flying. Anything. I found some of these on the internet this week. The luxuriant flowing hair club for scientists. I'm just disappointed that Stephen's not here today. 
the, the British Lawnmower Racing Society. I mean, who would join that? I mean, I'm in, right? I'm in the British Lawnmower Racing Society. This is the one that's got my name on it. The Not Terribly Good at Things Society for those who are not terribly good at things. I mean, I'm... <laughs> yep, that's, that's me. There are all sorts of reasons that, that gather people together, all sorts of means that, that people will use in order to try and create some sense of community. But it's the gospel that creates real community, and here's why. We're not a social club that gathers now and then. If you come in here on Sunday morning and, and we, you gather because you like to sing, join the choir, alright? I mean, come and sing, it's awesome. But if you, we don't gather just to sing. That's not why we're here. We don't gather to practice a particular hobby. We're not going to race lawnmowers afterwards, as much fun as that might be. If you treat the church as an occasional thing that you pop in to do every now and then, that you're missing community. We are knitted together as family through the cross to the point where we become let me quote some guy from his blog, I'm maybe this guy is just some random guy, but he just said it well. He says, only the gospel can create and unite people from diverse ethnic backgrounds, social statuses, different genders and ages, different interests and hobbies, and whatever other kinds of diverse identities. And that's because the gospel says that our unity is not based on these things. If you join the lawnmower racing society, it's because your unity is based around racing lawnmowers. But the gospel unites us in something else. Not on a hobby, not in a skin color, not in an age group. It says our, uni our unity is based on something objective and unchanging. The life, death, and resurrection of Jesus Christ. And in Christ there is no Greek and Jew, no circumcised or uncircumcised, no barbarian, Syrian, slave, or free. But Christ is all and in all. Paul's words from Colossians 3. And then this guy then quotes from Dietrich Bonhoeffer. So I'm quoting from someone who's quoting from someone, right? Dietrich Bonhoeffer was the German pastor who got locked up by the Nazis in a death camp and was hanged three days before the camp was liberated in 1945. And Dietrich Bonhoeffer wrote this. He says, Christian brotherhood is not an ideal which we must realize. It is rather a reality created by God and Christ in which we participate. In other words, what he's saying is, we don't create community, we participate in community that God has already created. And then he said, he goes on to say, the more clearly that we learn to recognize that the ground and strength and promise of all our, our fellowship is in Jesus Christ alone, the more serenely we shall think about fellowship and pray and hope for it. In other words, if we recognize that we are united in Christ, we'll be a lot more chill with each other. And a lot less eager to attack and ridicule and gossip and whatever about each other. And then to quote another guy, a guy called Michael Horton, a theologian, he says, When God raises our eyes from ourselves to his Son through the gospel, we begin to see ourselves surrounded by a community of people. When, we, when to Jesus we lift up our eyes, we begin to see our eyes lift up and we see around us, we have some peripheral vision and we see the world alone. We see a community of people who are no longer simply brothers, but who are neighbors. Sorry, some people who are no longer simply neighbors, but who are brothers and sisters. 
Christ and his gospel is the tie that binds. I did not choose these people to be my brothers and sisters. God did. And like me, you are elected, redeemed, called, and justified by God in Christ. The gospel is what creates community. But why do we need community? What is the purpose of community? Why do we need it? Can't we just get on with it by ourselves? Why can't we be Christian individuals? Why do we need the church? Why can't you just stay at home and watch a good sermon every now and then, once a week maybe, and learn something new? Isn't that what Christianity is about? Listening to a sermon and hearing something new now and then? Can't I just sit at home and read the Bible by myself? Paul gives two reasons for community here. He says, I can't come, but I'm sending Timothy for two reasons. He says, the first reason that Timothy is coming is to strengthen and encourage you in your faith. Why would you need to send Timothy to do that? Why doesn't Paul just say, listen, you need to be strengthened in your faith, so read your Bible and pray a little bit. Isn't that all we need? Isn't it all we need to just watch a sermon online every now and then and be encouraged by that? Why take the effort of sending Timothy along? Because we're not strengthened and encouraged by ourselves in the dark, in isolation all alone. We don't gain encouragement from some stranger on the internet. Being established in our faith and sending deep roots down requires community. Requires gathering with others. Requires sharing life. It requires taking a risk. And Timothy took that risk for the sake of encouraging and strengthening and establishing the church community. And the point is that we need each other. We don't grow in isolation. We don't grow our faith all alone. Our faith is not like having a home gym where you have some barbells that you can do your little thing. The New Testament calls us to exercise our faith in community. And, and so the New Testament then is full of one another statements. Love one another. Bear with one another. Forgive one another. Bear one another's burdens. We can't do those things in isolation. And doing those things is what makes church messy. Christian fellowship acknowledges the reality of weakness, the possibility of failure, the likelihood of disappointment, and still draws alongside. And so the tough question is, if community is what we're called to participate in, then are you participating in community? Are you being strengthened and encouraged in faith? But more importantly, are you strengthening and encouraging the faith of others? I think we all want others to be a Timothy to us. But are we being a Timothy The second reason that community is important, the second reason we need community, is, is so that you may be unmoved in affliction. Unmoved in affliction, says Paul. And at the beginning of the week, when I started my first week of this, week of this passage, I thought this was going to be the main point. It's why we sang those songs this morning of, life is hard, you're going to suffer, suck, suck it up, cupcake, you know, put on your big girl pants because life is tough. Paul says here that we're destined for trials. There was a, a very cheesy Christian pop song in the 1980s that when we are destined to win. Yes. And Paul says we are destined to suffer, which just doesn't 
says we are destined to suffer. We are destined for trials. He says, you know, we kept telling you that we were going to be persecuted. We knew it was coming. We knew that the devil was going to come to undermine faith. And you know that society is going to want to knock you back in your faith. You know that you're going to suffer. And Paul says, guess what? It happened. It happened exactly as we told you. You have suffered. I told you so. I think you know this too, right? That you will suffer. In this life, you will face hardship. Life is hard. It's, it, it is a bed of roses. There's lots of thorns in there. Live long and you will suffer. Some of you are going to get COVID. And some of you are going to get TB. And some of you will get cancer. And someone will lose a job. And someone will have their car stolen. Bad things are going to happen. Someone is going to bash their thumb with a hammer. Probably today. And Paul says, I'm sending Timothy so that you will not be unsettled by these trials. Pardon me, I mean, I do, but I don't. I understand, but I don't understand. Those people who, who suffer and then hide and pretend that there's nothing wrong and that there's nothing, nothing bad has happened and say nothing about the hardship they're facing. And I'm not suggesting that we just bear it all out. And then everyone gets to hear about every ailment that you ever have. There are some things that we don't need to know about in public. But we're called to bear one another's burdens. And how can we know what the burdens are unless you tell us what the burdens are? And we'll find, and this is what Paul is pointing out, that in the midst of our trials and hardships and difficulties and, and adversities that will surely come, that in community, we're unmoved. Why? Because those around us remind us of faith. Those around us point us to faith. Those around us point us to the gospel. Those around us point our eyes to Jesus. And as when we gather and we sing together, that we're reminded, lift your eyes. In the midst of the hardship and the trouble and the strife, lift your eyes. And so we need one another. We need community to be with one another. Community is necessary to strengthen faith and to face affliction. So, community is both necessary and beneficial. And the question in closing this morning is just, are you, are we pursuing community? So here's a couple of, I want to say like, I say questions, but they're more like statements. Just asking the question, how individualistic are you? To what extent are you shaped by Western society and Western, uh, Western individualistic culture? Five statements with a bunch of questions or whatever behind it. Number one, self-reliance. Are you the kind of person who is, are you proud of your ability to deal with your own problems and your own challenges? You don't need help from others. You enjoy being asked for help, but never ask for help. You find it's a little bit difficult to be vulnerable and let people know what's going on with you because you've got your own issues to deal with. And you perhaps even honestly think that you don't need anyone else to help you grow spiritually because reading the Bible and prayer is sufficient for you. You perhaps even find it hard to receive gifts or help from others without wanting to pay them back. How self-reliant are you? How self-sufficient 
Others might think that you're a good Christian, but very few know who you really are. You might appear to be outward and outgoing and extroverted, but your relationships all stay on the surface. Very few people have access to your life. You don't let people know what's going on in your life. You don't want anyone to dig deeper. When relationships get hard, you tend to withdraw rather than to deal with the issue. You often measure spiritual growth by how much you know. How self-sufficient are you? What about self-protection? You like to keep people at arm's length so that you don't get hurt or rejected. You measure your spiritual growth and maturity by what others say about you. You fear that if others knew the real you, they'd run away screaming. And so you avoid conflict. If people offend or hurt your feelings, you'll, you'll say nothing rather than risk anger or rejection. You're addicted to approval. You gain your value from what others think about you and say about you. Self-protection. What about self-importance? You're addicted to busyness. It's how you fill the void. All the deep relationships and the, all the void of the deep relationships in your life. You, you have a high uh, concern for others. You want their attention. Then you have a responsibility for others. In other words, you're more interested in their attention than you are in sacrifice and giving. You're more concerned with what others think of your accomplishments than what they think of you relationally, your relational influence in their life. You tend to measure your spiritual growth by what you've accomplished. How self-important are you? What about your self-will? You regularly choose work and hobbies over other people. Your schedule and your priorities take precedence. You'll never shuffle, seldom shuffle your agenda to serve others. You like having people around, but you don't want anyone's advice, and you certainly don't need correction. And when it comes to church, you're asking consumer-oriented questions like, what's in it for me? What do I like? What do I not like? How does this make me feel? How, what am I going to get out of this? Self-reliance, self-sufficiency, self-protection, self-importance, self-will. Those things will destroy community. Notice that all of them have self in it. If your self-centeredness was transformed into joyful God-centeredness, what would the results be for yourself and for the community around you? How do we transform ourselves into a gospel-centered community? COVID's made it hard. It's been it made it hard to meet and to grow and to engage. And I think sometimes I've used that as an excuse. But let's not allow the devil to hinder and to use our fears to prevent the need and necessity for community to take place. Instead, may they be that true longing that we may truly meet one another, see one another face to face, that we may encourage one another in faith and be unmoved in our affections. Let's pray. Lord Jesus, thank you that you have called us to community. And yet we so often and so easily buy into society's call to be individuals, to be self-sufficient and self-willed, 
to bind to consumer idea of what's in it for me. Lord, may your gospel break that in us. And may we instead participate in the community that you have created. May we learn increasingly to love one another and serve one another and care for one another and bear one another's burdens and forgive one another and hold out grace with one another. That we may encourage and strengthen one another in our faith. That we may uphold one another in trials and difficulties and hardships that we must surely suffer. Lord, impress upon us again this morning the need, the necessity, the, 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 the vital life and breath of community for our faith. By your Spirit, may we delight in one another. Amen. I'm ask the band if you come up with sing that God is for us once more this morning. Perhaps on to with today.
this morning, may we leave with our eyes firmly fixed on you, with our gaze lifted up, looking to Jesus, knowing that our God is for us. Amen. See you next week.